Good morning, and good morning to those of you watching online. And um, so we are in the third week of a four-week series called Recapturing the Wonder That Is the Church. It's part of a campaign initiative that we started last fall. And last fall, we launched uh, a campaign that was going to be a much bigger campaign. Uh, we were going to be doing a campaign to deal with our capacity issues. We were filling up too much on weekends. We need to increase our weekend capacity. And then COVID hit, and we had no idea what the needs would be uh, after COVID. So rather than to just not do anything in the uncertainty of that, we decided to move forward with things that were certain, and there were some things that we needed to work on. We needed to work on uh, creating a more welcoming environment. We needed to work on our financial foundations. Uh, we wanted to partner with some of our impact partners, and so we launched a smaller uh, campaign, and we called it BLESS. And even though only 40% of us were at that time actually gathering in person and, uh, and uh, a certain amount that turns out is impossible to actually measure <laughs> online, uh, we were able to raise 70% toward our goal. And it's been amazing uh, to just see the results of that. Uh, for those of you who've been around here long enough, you know the results of what's happened on our entrance and as you come in, but also uh, more is being done on the outside of the building over the next few months uh, before, the, before the snow comes. Um, also, it's been amazing to see what's happened to our financial foundations and also exciting to see what we've been able to do with some of our partners, from Woodbury Elementary School to Hope Academy, which is in the Phillips neighborhood, to some mission incubators uh, with some of our students and some of our um, young adults in our church. So this fall, uh, we launched a, a part of that campaign that we're calling Bless and Strong. And there is uh, out in the commons a brochure that talks about what we're trying to accomplish in that. Basically, it's to, to make up that difference, that 30% difference, which is $500,000. Uh, but I've shared with you that one of my goals is more participation. The $500,000 is a great goal and it's something that we do wanna reach because it has some very real world right now results. But participation is a sign of spiritual health of a congregation. And that has, that has generational impact. That's why to me it is such a much more important goal than meeting the financial. So really, uh, participation at whatever the Lord guides you to and how Ever little it might be, however much it might be, is what we're, we're um, encouraging people who call Five Oaks their home uh, to participate in. And so uh, <clears throat> what we're going to be doing is next week we're going to be passing out commitment cards for how you might be able to participate in the next 14 to 15 months of the, of the duration of the campaign. And we're going to ask you to take them home to pray over them and discuss them, and then to let us know, probably online, you can bring the card in as well, but probably let us know how it is you might participate. It might be that you were disengaged last fall. It might be that you were living in a lot of uncertainty uh, financially last fall. Uh, we're not uh, asking, we're not <clears throat> just asking people to, hey, just give more. We're really asking you to just evaluate 
to pray and to go as God leads uh, for the sake of, of our mission as, as a church. So last year, we launched the, when we launched the BLESS campaign, we also did a BLESS series. And the BLESS series was focused on how each one of us individually and as our families and kind of in our home environment can bless other people by helping them find God. People who are far from God, helping them find God and experience a relationship with Christ. This year, the emphasis of this four-week series is how the church can be a blessing, how we together can be that same kind of blessing. And so we have been looking at it from a, a little bit of a different perspective rather than just attack it and say, okay, how can we be a blessing directly? I really thought it would be uh, very advantageous to just kind of rekindle and recapture, and for some people maybe capture for the first time, the wonder of the church, the wonder that it is of being God's people and being a local expression of the universal church of God. So um, if you're new with us, this is a vision series. We normally either do expository series through books or we do theological series uh, where we take a topic and look at it theologically. This is more of a, a vision series. So um, today we're looking at the third realization that helps us recapture the wonder. So we've been preaching one sermon over four weeks. This is the third point, third week, and that's what we're going to be looking at. But because uh, understanding the Bible and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery, I just want to invite you to get your Bibles out and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. If For those of you who are in here, you can grab one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. If you don't have one, for those of you using a phone or tablet uh, or other kind of device, we are using the NIV, the New International version. And so before we jump in, as we do every week, we ask God to illuminate his word to our hearts and to our minds, and we ask God the Holy Spirit to empower us to live it. So this prayer is based on James chapter 1. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the creator and giver of every good thing. Thank you for providing us with exactly what we need in your son Jesus. As we look to your word, we ask that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit, tune our ears to hear your voice, focus our eyes to see your truth, soften our hearts to believe that we might listen and receive. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. amen. All right, so back in uh, 2014, uh, there is a church consultant, author, visionary guy named Will Mancini, and he wrote an article that created a bit of a stir. Uh, in you know, church leadership circles, uh, not in society at large. But he made a prediction about 2015. And here is how he stated in that article the prediction. He says, your most committed people will attend worship less frequently than ever in 2015. Now, that is like a no-brainer. Uh, anybody could have made that prediction back in 2014 because the trend had been happening for about 20 years. Uh, but I think the reason it caused a stir were two reasons. The first reason was because of the way that he stated it. Nobody had quite stated it like this before. Your most committed people are going to attend less often next year. And I think that caught a lot of people's attention, I think. Uh, a lot of people think, well, the most committed people are always going to be there. 
Nope, your less committed people have been attending less and less often, really at this point for about, when he wrote this for about 20 years. Uh, I think the second reason that it caused a stir is that in the article, he didn't blame anybody for that. He didn't say, yeah, those most committed people just need to get more committed. He actually gave the reasons for it, and he challenged the church, uh, challenged churches to respond to the new reality, that it was a reality that the church had to respond to that the church wasn't going to overcome. Now, I had uh, a lot of discussions with a lot of people about this, and uh, a lot of times, especially with pastors, got a lot of pushback. They just could not get their heads around what it was that Will Mancini was saying. I remember back in the mid-90s where probably this trend began to really be noticeable. Our senior pastor in the church where I was an associate pastor in Wichita came to one of our staff meetings and he had this report that he'd asked somebody to print out of the membership pattern of our members. And he said, we've got a huge problem. Our members are only attending a little over 50% of the time. And we've got to talk about this, and we've got to figure out what we're going to do about this. And we didn't get very far into the discussion before one of the pastors on staff said, Gene, you're barely here 50% of the time. And it kind of ended the discussion. We moved on to something else. <laughs> I've had the same kind of conversation with a lot of pastoral leaders, and I basically asked the same question. When are you going to show up? more than 50% of the time. And they look at me like, like I'm crazy. I said, really, look at your schedule. There are all kinds of reasons why you are missing you know, almost half the time uh, from, from your church. So the, the question is, and I think this is the, the, the kind of uh, thing that, that people haven't come to terms with, is because to a certain degree uh, of affluence, the opportunities that we have in our modern world, there are a lot of really important things that we're able to attend to that happen to happen on the weekends that previous generations didn't get to attend to. So the question you might ask, and I have again asked this of pastors, say, okay, so which are the things that your most committed people, the people who want to be there every week, which of the things do you, that they're doing now do you want to tell them to stop doing? Do you want to, to tell them, don't take vacations, uh, don't go on mission trips, don't go to your cabin uh, with family and friends or to a friend's cabin, don't visit family that live far away, don't go on spiritual retreats, uh, get your kids out of sports. There's some communities where if your kid is not going to play on the weekend, they can't play on the team. There's entire sports programs that are run like that in certain communities. So get your kids yeah, out of sports. Uh, which one of those things are you actually going to ask people to drop? About five, six years ago, we'd had, six years ago, we had our first grand, grandchild, and she was in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, Lois's parents were uh, living in a care facility in, just outside of uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And her brother is here and her sister is in Sioux Falls, so the burden of 
her parents' uh, increasing struggles and challenges with her mother struggling with some dementia, with her dad's blindness um, and orneriness. Um, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> but uh, she would have to, she would have to, she would go out there, not have to, she'd go out there once a month to support her sister and to see her parents and to be able to help with what her sister was having to do as a widow on her own. And she would oftentimes make it back for Sunday, but she wasn't always able to make it back. And really, she could have been a better help if she hadn't made it back. And if she wasn't a pastor's wife very committed to being a part of a congregation, maybe she wouldn't have made it back as often as she did. And then about every six weeks or so, on average, she flew down for the weekend to, and I joined her every once in a while, but she would fly down to Louisville because she wasn't going to miss our new grandchild's life. Which of those things would you tell her you need to drop so that you can gather with the church more often? So here's, here's the dilemma, because there is a dilemma here. Gathering with other believers as part of a local church is still a necessary ingredient to a thriving spiritual life, and really to a growing spiritual life. Um, it's a necessary ingredient to accomplishing God's mission as well that a local church be strong and that its people be committed to that is important for God's mission. But the more and more good things, oftentimes necessary things that can get in the way of that happening, what begins to happen in us is we begin to devalue uh, the gathering. We devalue it and we begin to neglect it in our habits. It no longer becomes, it, after a while, it's no longer one of those good habits, like a good habit of exercise or eating right or getting enough sleep, those kinds of good habits, you start losing that, that habit. I literally don't know a single person who devalues gathering and avoids gathering with other believers and is thriving spiritually. You say, how, do you, how can you say that? That is an extreme statement. <laughs> I can say it because the very definition in Scripture of what thriving spiritually means, it doesn't mean I feel good, I'm doing well, you know, I'm doing well. It requires interaction with the body of Christ. That's how God, that's how Jesus, that's how the apostles define spiritual thriving. Now, that's not going to be my point today. I do just want to make the point that the stakes are high for our own spiritual lives. And the stakes are even higher for parents. Jared Wilson uh, wrote an article recently with a, I admit, provocative title <laughs> that says this. This is the title, How to Disciple Your Kids into Church Dropout Status. And then he gives you four ways to disciple your kids into church dropout status. And uh, his first one, and I combined with his last one, he basically makes this point. He says, if you treat church like an option, or a consumer product, your children will too. So to restate the problem, the more we miss gatherings for all kinds of really good reasons and oftentimes necessary reasons, the more in our hearts we begin to devalue it, the less it is a habit in our lives, even when we know full well that it is impacting God's mission, that it's impacting our own spiritual thriving from a scriptural standpoint, and even when we know that it's impacting the next generation. The Bible values gathering, and it 
warns very strongly against isolating ourselves as believers. Hebrews 10 is one of those passages, and uh, it's, it's a very familiar passage. Uh, but in Hebrews 10, here's what the Apostle Paul says in verse 24 and verse 25. Not the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews. We don't know who the author is. So this is what it says. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, the argument leading up to those verses is this incredible uh, description, detailing of how amazing it is, the wonder that we get to experience as Christians, that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we're given direct access to God, that we can have a reconciled relationship with God, that we can have an ongoing relationship with God, and that it is made possible by Christ dying on the cross for our sins. He was the sacrifice that forgives our sins, okay? That's the argument leading up to this. You would think in one sense that, that the author would say, how much more could you possibly need? I mean, you have direct access to God. <laughs> what more do you need? And yet he says, what you need is you need to gather together. And he raises up that value. Uh, and then he warns against isolation. He says, don't, don't do as some people have done. They've gotten out of the habit of gathering together. In spite of all the forces that are keeping us from gathering with other believers, what would happen if we still valued it? In spite of the forces that keep you and me from being here as often as maybe we would like to be here, what would happen if we didn't lose that value or didn't lose that habit? I'll tell you what I think would happen. If we truly valued gathering with other believers for worship and fellowship, we'd find workable solutions for gathering. And I know many of you have, and you're thriving because of it. You find workable solutions for doing that. As a church, and I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface on this because it's hard, it's, it's hard for congregations to break uh, centuries-long habits. But as a church... I think we'd find some solutions for meeting people right where they're at. The problem is a lot of those solutions, wouldn't, nobody would use them <laughs> um, in, in our tradition. Uh, so I don't even think we've begun to really scratch the surface uh, of that. The key and the necessary element, though, is that we value the gathering together for worship and fellowship. So in this series, we've been looking at these four realizations that recapture the wonder of the church. And today's realization is we get to gather as God's church. We get to gather as God's church. So I've quoted uh, probably every week of this series so far, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, because he wrote a book years and years ago during World War II in Nazi Germany as he was part of an underground movement that was trying to keep the gospel alive in Germany under Nazism during World War II and, and at the same time uh, resisting uh, Hitler's uh, moves and the things that he was doing. 
And so they had kind of an underground church. And he wrote a book called Life Together. And so it's, it's become a, a, a Christian classic of community. And this is what he writes in that context of Germany, Nazism, underground church. He said, it is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's word and sacrament. Not all Christians receive this blessing. The imprisoned, the sick, the scattered lonely, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands stand alone. They know that visible fellowship is a blessing. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. The prisoner, the sick person, the Christian in exile sees in the companionship of a fellow Christian a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in a community with Christian brethren. Now, COVID would have had this same kind of effect, not being able to gather except under extreme circumstances for Bonhoeffer caused him to just see the incredible privilege of it, the incredible blessing, the wonder of what God has done by calling together a people and allowing us to gather together and see each other face to face. And I think COVID would have done that. I think COVID has done that in many places of the world, especially among the world's poor. I think that's been mitigated for us. And I think it's been mitigated that this kind of expression has been, has been kind of avoided for us because we, ha we, we have the internet, right? And so the internet mitigated that sense of isolation that would have come from other believers. And not only that, as I've talked to people and even from my own experience, it's our lives for so long had been into COVID and are again so frantic, so busy, so stress-filled that it's like so many Christians needed a collective sabbatical. <laughs> and that's been a lot of people's experience. It's like, yeah, I know I feel guilty, but man, I, I kind of really enjoyed sitting sitting in my pajamas with a cup of coffee, doing church at home, <laughs> you know? And, and I think a lot of that is just quite natural because of the frantic pace of our lives. But Bonhoeffer captures the real wonder of it. And it's if we lost that, really lost that, without the internet, that maybe we would capture the real wonder of what we get to do. It's a blessing. It's a grace of God that we get to do that. That in companionship, we have a physical sign of the triune God. In his words, it is a grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Companionship, face-to-face -face engagement is so emphasized in Scripture. Um, I never thought about it this way until this week as I was, or last week as I was preparing this sermon. I want to show you a couple of passages that in a sense emphasize the face-to-face -face, uh, impact uh, in this way. So in 1 Corinthians 11.34, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, when I come, I will give further directions. Now, uh, about what? Well, if you read everything like the first, second half of that chapter, he is writing to the Corinthian church about the Lord's Supper, and he's giving them instructions. Not uh, he gives them some basic instructions. He reminds them of what had been passed on to him, which had been passed on through the apostles who had experienced the Last Supper, the disciples. 
But most of that text is about abuses of the Lord's Supper. We, we looked at this a few, a few um, months ago, a couple months, two or three months ago, I think. And so when he says at the very end of that whole discussion, when I come, I will give further directions, this for historians and church leaders and many of you is like one of the most frustrating phrases in the entire Bible. Because the church has been like majorly divided over the Lord's Supper. You've got probably three or four major doctrines. They agree, I would say they agree on what is absolutely essential. I, I just have to believe that. But they disagree on what is happening in the Lord's Supper, the Roman Catholic position, the Lutheran position, the non-Lutheran Protestant position, and probably Eastern Orthodox, which I just don't know what their position is. So there's probably four major perspectives. And it's like, in his further instructions that he gave, could he have possibly, could God, who, you know, who uh, inspired the Scripture, maybe have given us a little bit more information so we could have a little bit more unity on something that's so important to our faith? So it's, it's kind of frustrating. Second uh, John, uh, it's a one-chapter uh, book, letter, and he says this, he says, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. What's he dealing with in that letter? He's dealing with various kinds of heresies that are happening that day. That is, ways that people were teaching things contrary to the apostolic witness. And it was taking the potential of shipwrecking people's faith. And the whole history of the church has been a history of gathering together to look at the latest heresy and how do we speak to it and how do we bring Scripture to bear on it. All the councils of the churches, the creeds that we have, our responses to various heresies. And you just wonder, well, if he had written, instead of this short letter with only a few verses, if he had written something to the tune of Romans, <laughs> maybe we wouldn't have all these heresies. Um, maybe it, so you in a sense th this is this is the weird conclusion take it for what it's worth that I that I had as I reflected on this uh, Paul and John are saying that good things are going to happen and there are things that are going to be learned by meeting in person that scripture alone can't accomplish because they're writing scripture there's something I need to say to you face to face there's a joy that I want to impart face-to-face. -face. I don't even want to put on pen and ink. And we consider that pen and ink to be Scripture itself. <laughs> um, that's how important face-to-face -face is. And the reality is we believe that the Scripture teaches us that Scripture is sufficient, that it has given us everything that we absolutely do need for what is essential to believe about God and to live out our lives for God. But you can't help as a historian that just, oh, you know, um, think that maybe a few more words of pen and ink could maybe have solved all those problems. Why do we need face-to-face -face gatherings as Christians? I want to give you three reasons. The first one is we are more than what we think. We are more than what we think. So it's, a, it's one of those weird things of modern life that kind of the, the collective society today has caught up with Christianity 
on a teaching that Christianity has been teaching now for decades, but that is not scriptural. The culture has finally believed what Christianity has been teaching for decades and has been wrong about it all along. And that is the idea that you are what you think. Um, we have believed that you are what you think. It's not a biblical idea. It has never been a biblical idea. Uh, it's not true, for example, I think I used as an example not too long ago in a sermon, this woman who identifies as a cartoon character. And so she's gone all over the world to get surgeries, plastic surgeries that American doctors will not do. They just literally will not do, uh, which is amazing that, that that's the case still, that there's certain things that they will not do. Uh, but they will not, for example, I think one of the things that she's had done is removed, had ribs removed so that she can have that cartoonish figure like this. Um, she's had all kinds of enhancements done to her face to make her look more like a cartoon and in other parts of her body to make her look more like a cartoon. She thinks in some level, at some level, that she's a cartoon. She is not what she thinks. I, I, don't, I really don't know hardly anybody that would, that would argue with that in our entire society, that she is not a cartoon. Uh, several years ago, there was a... NAACP official who had presented herself as black for a long, long time. And she wasn't. And it was found out. And in an interview about why she had done it, she said, hey, I wasn't identifying as black to upset people, because a lot of people were upset. She says, I was just being me. So she considered herself black. But there's hardly anybody in our society who looks at her and says, well, because you think you're black, you are black. No, she is not what she thinks. And this applies to so many other areas of our, of our um, society and thinking, and it applies to the area of sexuality uh, as well. And we're going to be talking about some of those as we, we look at Christian sexuality for four weeks after this series. Philosopher James K.A. Smith has been questioning this you-are-what-you-think philosophy for a long, long time. He's been writing about it for years and years. And here's one of, his, um, one of the things that he says. He's a Christian. He says, we imagine human beings as giant bobblehead dolls. He's talking about Christians. With humongous heads and itty-bitty unimportant bodies. It's thinking that defines who we are. Such an intellectualist model of the human person, one that reduces us to mere intellect, assumes that learning, and hence discipleship, is primarily a matter of depositing ideas and beliefs into our mind containers. He's written, I mean, extensively on this problem. He says, we are not just thinking things, or as he says, oftentimes, we're not brains on a stick. We live our lives and have been created in bodies, and our bodies impact us and shape us. And so one of his common themes in his writing is that we are shaped not just by depositing ideas into our minds, but by Christian community 
and spiritual habits that we carry on on a regular basis. We don't carry on those spiritual habits just to get more information into our heads. If, if it's all about information, guess what? You can stay home every week and watch much better preachers than me. <laughs> all right? You can stay home. You've got the whole world to choose from where you can deposit information into your head. Or you can say, I'm not just a thinking thing. It's important for me to have bodily contact, face-to-face contact with people. Um, So Christian community actually is one of the ways God forms Christ in us. That is lost on a lot of Christians today because of an incorrect theology that we would never agree in the area of sexuality, but we agree in the area of spirituality. So... Um, hopefully in the series that we're going to be doing on sexuality after this series, we're going to come out, my hope is we come out with a firmer grasp of the implications of the fact that God made us bodily, that bodily matters, bodily matters matter, that bodily desires, our bodily desires are in the scripture story and explanation of things. Our desires are out of tune in many, many ways with how God has created us and designed us to live. Um, and that's explained in Scripture repeatedly, but it goes back to Genesis 3, that Jesus was without sin, and yet he had a body. <laughs> that when Jesus was resurrected, resurrected, he didn't resurrect as a spirit. He resurrected with a resurrection body. That when we, when Christ returns, we are going to be given our resurrection bodies. We're not going to be disembodied spirits for eternity. We're going to be given resurrection bodies. And, um, and so hopefully we'll come out of that series with a little bit of better sense of, of these bodies that we have and these desires that we have. And by the way, that series is going to be PG-13. Um, we'll try to warn people every week uh, about that. And, um, and our students are going to be doing uh, the same, um, many of the same subjects from a diff- little bit of a different angle. Uh, a lot of you parents know there's all kinds of parenting resources that we're making available to you as well. So we are more than what we think, more than thinking things, more than brains on a stick, more than, than just gathering to get information into our heads. Um, we, are, we are shaped by community. We're shaped by our actions and by our habits, practices that we do together. That's one of the reasons why we need face-to-face. Second, there's power in the presence of others. I remember vividly being in college, home for the summer, got my wisdom teeth removed, and uh, getting an infection on one, of these, one side of my mouth. And not having, uh, it just kind of the onset was in the evening. I didn't, hadn't gone to a doctor to get any medication. I think all we had was aspirin in the house. And taking aspirin every four hours, and you know, take about an hour for the aspirin to start working, uh, and then, you know, about the third hour, it would start having diminishing results, and then I would take another one, and then it would take another hour for it to ramp up, and just spending a whole night going in and out of sleep and moaning because of the pain that was running through my head that just seemed unbearable. But I remember my mom hearing my moaning and her walking over to my room and just rubbing my back every time I would wake up and would be moaning. She'd just rub my back. And the comfort that came 
through that. I remember uh, just as vividly maybe 15 years ago when my mom was living, and she was living next to us, and we had an apartment next to our house, and I was fighting nausea. And uh, I'd gotten sick, and I was fighting nausea, and it was just, like, overwhelming. Lois wasn't around to cry to her, and so... <laughs> I went over to my mom's, and again, what did she do? She kind of just rubbed my back while I'm just like, uh, like, I wish I would just throw up, but I hate throwing up, so I'm not going to throw up. I'd rather be in pain. Um, and so there is something physical. There's a University of Wisconsin study where they put people's feet into uh, freezing cold water. And one of the results of the study was that people could, on average, withstand it twice as long if somebody else was in the room. There's power in the presence of others. In John's letter, he says he's coming and that being face-to-face -face will make their joy complete in a way that pen and ink can't. There's going to be something about that face-to-face. -face. So I think most of us know there's a difference between worshiping together and worshiping online when we have to. I think we all know that. Even those who have found that Worshiping online has some advantages and might even have some advantages for some of their kids. I've heard people say, no, my kids actually did better worshiping together online. I think even those people say there is a difference and online just doesn't match. Ultimately, when all is said and done, it doesn't match being face to face. So listening to an interview uh, a while back, a few weeks ago, Alan George, he he has a consulting company that helps churches make their online experience better and more pastoral. And he, um, he talks to churches that are reluctant to invest in that. Now, uh, the reality is he's, he's dealing with really big churches. Churches our size and smaller, it's really hard to invest in that without like, stopping to invest in the in-person. It's really, really hard because it's expensive and it's difficult. And our, you know, the current staff that we have is, we have full plates already as it is. But he finds churches that could do more and they don't do it. They're reluctant to do it. So he gives this story, this analogy from his, from his life. He says, my mom for many years lived in India. If she would call and say uh, on FaceTime video, hey, I want to talk to the grandkids, put the kids on the phone. If I were to tell my mom, mom, I know you miss the grandkids, but you won't have the best experience through a FaceTime video call. Let's wait for six months until you come here in person, and then you can talk to them. She would slap me through the phone. <laughs> I mean, that's how she is. It's like, get the kids on the phone. Great point. Very true. That's why we offer online experiences, because sometimes we can't make it, and it's important. But imagine a little bit of a different scenario. Imagine she calls to make plans to visit from India. And in the call, he says to her, Mom, why visit when you can talk to the kids on FaceTime? She'd slap him through the phone. <laughs> Absolutely. Because when everything is balanced out, in-person wins the day by far. Uh, in-person wins the day by far. Online is supplemental at best, an important supplement, uh, one that over time we will even invest more in. Uh, but um, it's an important supplement. But uh, if you don't agree, if you don't agree with what I'm saying, I just put a challenge out there. Try to do your marriage on Zoom. 
Try raising your children on Zoom. Uh, if you're going to get married, do it on Zoom, separate locations, <laughs> and live out your life like that. doesn't work, does it? There's a Philippians passage I don't have time to go into, but the Philippians passage, uh, the, it's, it's listed in there. The Apostle Paul talks about the importance of this man that the Philippians sent to him in prison and how it encouraged his heart. And then he's sending them back. And he says, I know you're dying to see him. You could just, you know, let me tell you about his life and what's going on. No, I know you want to see him. You heard that he almost died and you need him face to face. Third reason, we need glimpses of glory. We need glimpses of glory. It's something that we experience when we gather. So Tim Chester, who wrote a book years ago, I've referenced it many times. It's called A Meal with Jesus. It's basically, it's, it's a fairly short book, but it basically works through the whole Gospel of Luke and talks about all the meals that Jesus has in the Gospel of Luke. And he says, um, he, he talks about the fact when Jesus was planning for celebrating the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, he told his disciples, he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's about to go to the cross, and he has desired it. And then he tells him, I am not going to have this meal with you again until the kingdom comes in fullness. So this is it. This is my last Passover. But when my kingdom comes in fullness, we're going to have this feast. And it's going to be incredible. He had taught about it in his parables constantly. He longs to eat with them. He longs for this meal that he's going to have with friends. Because it's a foretaste of what? A future meal. This feast when he returns. All right, then Tim Chester says this. Jesus will experience in the supper a glimpse of the goal of his work of salvation. He's going to get a glimpse of what the scripture always calls glory when Christ returns. The meal functions in the same way for us. What we call the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the Lamb's Supper in Revelation 19. It's a beginning of the feast that we eat with Jesus and his people in the new creation. It's not just a picture. It's the real thing begun in a partial way. We eat with God's people and we eat with the ascended Christ present through the Holy Spirit. It's not the feast. It's not the feast, because that is going to be a bodily feast. But it is the real thing begun in a partial way. It's not just a picture. It's not just a symbolic action. Remember again, it's the real thing begun in a partial way. We get a glimpse of glory. All of our worship functions in the same way. Revelation 5 describes an ongoing worship service happening in the heavens. It's happening right now. I'll never forget, I was probably in my 20s, when a Christian teacher was talking about worship, and he said, you realize that every time we gather together with worship, what we're doing, it's corporate worship. We're, we're joining in with corporate worship that is happening in the heavens. We get to be a part of that. That should leave us with a sense of wonder. You can read about that in, in Revelation chapter 5. We need glimpses of glory. Glimpses of glory in worship and fellowship sustain us. They ignite joy. They kindle our hope. 
All that happens when we gather with other believers. If you're struggling with renewing the habit of gathering together face-to-face with other believers, if you're struggling with that, let me just leave you with a couple of things real quickly here. One is a story that Tom Berg, many of you know Tom Berg, a longtime member of Five Oaks. They moved to Lakeville and years ago and uh, started attending a church out there. And so Tom told me a story. I can't remember why he told it to me, but he said, you know, years ago, uh, we, went to, we were living in South Dakota, he said, and we went to a church that had both Sunday morning and Sunday night services. Many of you grew up in churches like that. And so uh, Sunday morning, we, we didn't have trouble making it Sunday morning, but it seemed more often than not we wouldn't make Sunday night, even though we wanted to. In theory, we'd talk about it and we'd say, we want to be there Sunday night. We think it's important for us to be there on Sunday night. But he said, every week, middle of the afternoon, we'd start talking about, are we going to go tonight? And, oh, you know, I got a rough week next week. Or, it's been such a tiring week this last week. Let's, let's, take, let's not go tonight. And so they would have this discussion every single time. He said, all of that ended, and we became regular on Sunday night when we just looked at each other and said, we're not going to have this discussion anymore. It's no longer going to be a discussion. We're going every week. The only reason that we wouldn't go is we can't go. Discussion over. <laughs> he said that turned everything around. So just recently, I get uh, a weekly email by James Clear, who wrote the book Atomic Habits that uh, you've heard me talk about many times. Fantastic book. And he says this. He says, a quick and easy tip for building habits that last. Pick a standard time and place to do it. It's easier to wake up knowing, I exercise at 4 p.m., than to decide each time when to fit a habit into your day. Or you could add to this, whether to fit a habit that day into your day. If it's already decided, all you need to do is show up. I want to encourage you, if this is a struggle, if, if the craziness of our lives has chipped away at the value of gathering in your heart, and has broken the habit of gathering. I, I, I want to encourage you to make a decision now. Don't discuss it anymore. If uh, Just get up and do it. Or come Saturday night. We could use more people on Saturday night. Come Saturday night. <laughs> you know, just that's what we do on Saturdays at 4.30. Come and join us for worship. And when you show up, experience the wonder of getting together as God's church. You'll glimpse glory, you'll receive power for your journey in Christ by being with others. Decide now what you will do. Experience the wonder. Let's begin our response time of our worship service by celebrating communion together. I just want to remind you again, this is the real thing begun in a partial way. We look forward to the day when we will have this meal with Jesus. And the only reason we're going to be there having that meal with Jesus is because we've put our faith in Jesus and what he did on that cross. What did he do? He said, this bread, it's my body, broken for you. He was the sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. Let's eat. And he said, this cup is my blood. It's for the remission of sins. It's a sign of a new covenant, a new agreement that I have with you. Father, we thank you for the wonder 
of being able to gather together. Um, Father, I pray for us that as that, that wonder is reduced in our lives, as the franticness and the stresses and anxieties press in on us, and we lose a sense of that wonder, and it just becomes something we do or eventually something that we just don't do like we used to do. I pray that you would raise that value in our hearts so that even when we can't be together, we are finding ways of getting face-to-face with our brothers and sisters in Christ, of being the church, of serving, using our spiritual gifts, serving each other. Diverse group of people, even people we don't like very much, but they're your children. Some don't like us. We thank you, Father, that you've called us into that fellowship and that unity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.